24-24 right now. She's obliterating the record. Alicia Barnall is about to four-peat. The only man in history to do it. Kara Goucher, she wanted to do this event. It was important to her. Here in Duluth, how sweet it is. Her arm raised in triumph. Welcome, everybody, to the Gearing Up for Grandma's podcast, brought to you by Essentia Health. I'm your host, Peter Graves, and thanks so very much for being with us. Today on the show, we have part two of our interview with the fascinating Chuck Engel. He is a self-proclaimed marathon junkie and also works for a website called MarathonGuide.com. Yeah, Peter, thanks so much for having me. So... You have this incredible body of work, and it's clear you're not only passionate about it, but you really love it. It's your identity. Can you look back and say, I have two made significant sacrifices for this sport? I don't know if you think that way, but if you do, what were the sacrifices you may have had to make for this lifestyle? I think the biggest one, when you make a commitment to run, you know, my, my, my boss and I at marathonguide.com, when we made the decision to try to run 50 marathons in 2005, all under 250, uh, it, it, in a roundabout way, it, it cost me a relationship. Uh, I, I, I looked at that then as a sacrifice, I look at it now as a, as, a, as a blessing because I, I'm married now to one of the most wonderful women in the world who not only sees my drive and my passion, she sees the commitment I have to her, and she has that same commitment to me and to the running community. Uh, so it, it, while I, I looked at it as a sacrifice, um, it, it was just a stepping stone. I, I looked at that relationship as a stepping stone. It was a learning moment in my life, much like all the running has been. And now I'm in a, in a far better place uh, with a much much better, more suitable, compatible person for me. Uh, so relationships is probably, if anybody was going to say, oh, you sacrificed the relationship for it. And I, again, I, I see how that could be labeled as a sacrifice. I, I think there's been friendships that have ended because of my unwillingness to sit around and party and drink all the time. Uh, I still find time to hang out with friends who, who, most of them, in fact, all of them are in this with me. And anybody within my circle, uh, which is very small and very close knit, anybody within that circle is as passionate about what I'm doing as I am about what they're doing. And it's almost 100% involved with running, marathoning, triathlons. Um, I really, I don't want to make room for other people. So as soon as someone wants to get into my circle that isn't involved wholeheartedly into the industry, uh, well, they don't last. I mean, it's, it, they just, it's like any running conversation. If you sit down at a table with a group of runners and you're not a runner, you're going to be bored out of your mind. You're going to just walk away. And we as runners look at it and kind of jokingly say, oh, that time you go to that party where no one wants to talk to you about your running. And I look at it as, well, I'm not, I'm not going to a party unless everybody's going to sit around and talk about running. Oh, that's, that's, that's really cool. Um, well, um, I, I want to ask you a couple questions and, um, Let's pick your knowledge and be honest. What's your favorite marathon of all time? That, that was rapid fire, but uh, I, I get asked that question a lot. 
Berlin for the course alone, the, the Berlin Marathon, in my opinion, uh, at least when I ran it, and I think to this day, it, it, it is absolutely the fastest legitimate course anywhere in the world. Uh, as far as being record eligible, being a fast course, it's, it's wicked fast. Uh, I, I like that race for the course. Now, if you're going to ask me a more investigative question, such as what's my favorite overall gorgeous, I mean, you and I would both, I mad marathon. I, I like that quaint community. I love Vermont. I, I love everything I do when I'm up there from sitting in the icy rivers to salmon fishing, to looking at the ski slopes and mountain bikers to the, 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 the beautiful skyline scenery. That's my favorite just must have go to every year race favorite post-race party uh with without a doubt rehoboth beach marathon uh you get into this big tent with 1200 of your closest sweaty marathon runners and everybody's drinking fireball uh, i i i usually don't partake in the fireball but uh the race director out there mary beth hutton is just a dear friend i've known her for years and she puts on one one heck of a marathon for sure it's beautiful uh, but she also puts on a post-race party that that is second to maybe New Year's Eve in New York City. Uh, the race sells out every year. It's 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 just it's a lot of fun. So I, that's kind of a three-pronged answer to your question. But course-wise, <laughs> no, but that's fine. That's fine. It's it, it's great. So um, with so many moments, is there a most memorable marathon moment for you that stands above all the rest? Yeah, I, I think the one that probably haunts me the most uh, was one of my most, I would say, most disappointing finishes in a marathon. Uh, I was very fortunate to, to run the Caltown Marathon uh, in Texas. And I made a late charge at the leader. Uh, and I lost. I finished second place by seven seconds. And you mentioned earlier about regret, sacrifices, and um I got to spend uh, immediately after the race, I got to spend time uh, with the race director, Heidi Phillips, uh, and in the, the media, the media trailer. And the race winner, uh, I guess what I was told is that he was carted off to, to the hospital uh, or to the medical tent uh, that I had put him in such duress. And I think that was the point in time in my marathon career, although I was 200 plus marathons in, I realized that I didn't push as hard as he did. I pushed. It was everything I had. My last mile was probably a five, five oh. I could go back and look at it. Five oh four, five oh five, which for me is just that's just crazy. That that I I shouldn't. I have no business running five oh four, five oh five as a final mile. But he collapsed and got carted off, and I finished. You know, going to media tent, talking to the race director, and having a great time. And I, you know, I think years later I looked back at that race and I. I realized what a disappointment it must have been uh, for the, maybe the RD to have somebody that close to winning it and not put in a sacrifice for her race. And I vowed to myself then and there, I thought, you know, I'm not going to let anybody down that way uh, in a race. I'm going to push. And my, my many trips to the medical tent after races is indicative of that thought. I, I, I just don't get me wrong. There's races where I go off and just goof around and have a good time. I realized that grandma's that it just wasn't going to be that day. My stomach was not going to allow me to do it, but I pushed as hard as I could through 13. When my stomach said, you push any harder, this won't be pretty for anybody. Uh, and then it's half marathon, certainly that I kind of goof around and have fun with, but when it comes to the marathon, I, 
I, for many years from, you know, from that race forward through my, my late thirties, early forties, and even some of my late forties, I, Peter, I just pushed until it hurt. And I made sure that there was as cliche as it is, there was nothing. I left everything on that course. There's nothing left in my body. And, and those are the days that you walk off the course. If you can walk off the course, those are the days that you really savor. So that, that was the, the Cowtown marathon. And I, that's, that's one of those moments where it, it's career changing. You just know you, you can, you can push harder. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the subject of pushing like that, a lot of marathon historians talk about that afternoon in the warm sun in Boston with Salazar and Dick Beardsley. And they also in the same breath said that they never either of them quite ran the same again. And it's interesting when you start dissecting the psychological aspects of that, when you are pushed to the absolute limit. And in fact, you're going maybe more than a hundred percent, you know, um, uh, it's interesting that that can happen. Um, that, that kind of, uh, that kind of effect of two people just pushing the hell out of each other. I, I remember reading, uh, Dick's story about the dual in the sun and having that as a mental note in my head about what it was like to push. And the thing I look back onto in the days of that he and Salazar race was they didn't have heart rate monitor watches or power monitor watches. So they, all they had was the physical ability and internal intuition to maybe think how fast they were running. But when you're in that competitive spirit, whether you're running, you know, for an age group win or uh, trying to run for an overall win in a marathon, I, I don't even think, I mean, the watch can beep and buzz and vibrate, but I, you lose yourself in the competitive nature of things. At least I do. Uh, and, and that, that can really, it, it, it can change a man. It absolutely will change you. And, you know, to their credit, they never race the same afterwards. I've, I've been very fortunate that one, I was never at that level. I was never at the 208 level um, or even close by any means. But I, I love that I've been in so many races like Columbus. When I finished second, I got past about 24 and a half. Uh, and I pushed, I pushed for everything I was, I was worth. I still got beat by over a minute. And, and I, I just vowed to myself, I'm going to come back and race harder at another race. I, I think, as all of us would admit, Doug, Dick Beardsley, all of us would admit, time, time will catch up. Uh, I, I, I don't know that that's caught up to me yet. I still like to go out and, and, and push as hard as I can, as I have in the last couple of marathons I've run, and even Ironmans. Uh, so I, I, I think Cowtown changed the way I think about racing. I don't know that it's changed, it didn't change the way I actually how well I race. I, I still think I race mentally, physically. I, I try to race as well as I can. Um, it didn't change my ability to race. It changed how I think about racing for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Back to our questions here. Uh, most memorable, uh, or uh, should I say, uh, favorite pre-race and post-race meal for you? Pre-race meal is always brown rice uh, with a, a, a grilled salmon, usually fresh Atlantic, or if I can get something even nicer, uh, but it's brown rice and salmon. I'm not a, I'm not a big carbohydrate guy the night before the race. I, I find with myself, I just feel bloated and heavy, but brown rice, salmon, super light. Uh, Post-race meal, uh, I remember doing Aston Valley one year and uh, Kat Fitzgerald came up and uh, she gave me a glass of champagne. And I, 
I'll be honest with you, Peter, I think a glass of champagne immediately following a race is a, is a pretty good way to finish a darn race. Well, especially when you do as well as you do. Uh, uh, most people just got to pound down the water. Um, um, what is the one thing you have to have when you're racing? I know that you have carefully thought out your shorts and singlet, and they're often themed. But is there any other thing that we may not see? Do you do you wear a, a sort of a talisman necklace at all, or or is there something that would give us a window on who who you are uh, in terms of uh, what you have to have while you're racing? Yeah, I I think the one thing that I'm probably a little too uh, quiet about is my face. Um, before any of the races where my wife and I are together, we, we kiss and there's a, a mental prayer that I say um, about the race, just keeping everybody safe and, and allowing God to bless us through each and every athlete through the race. Uh, so there's always, like I said, the prayer that, that I have pre-race. Um, the, the talisman now is, it's actually on my wrist. I, I got it Hawaii after I finished uh, the world champs Ironman. Um, it, it, you know, and again, it's a cliche thing, but after that, after finishing in Kona, which was a, a six, seven year thought, I never thought I'd get there. Um, but when I finally got there and crossed the finish line and my wife was there and uh, I don't know who was crying more, her or me, but um, I decided then and there that I was going to get this, this, um, this Kona wrist. And I, I haven't taken my bracelet off since I still wear it. Uh, but I'm going to go get a, I'm going to go get a tattoo uh, with that world championship logo probably on my calf, uh, which will be with me for life. It just, you know, again, cliche that I can do hard things. And I think finishing Ironman Kona, Ironman Hawaii was, for me, that was the epitome of, a, of, a, of, a, of the hardest physically draining day I've had, um, bar none. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the cerebral side or the mental preparation. Do you meditate uh, at all? during the days at all, when you have the time, is it, and do you, if you do, do you find it ground, grind it, grounding? Yeah. My, my meditation is, is in Charlotte, at least where I live now, Fort Mill, Charlotte, South Carolina, North Carolina. I have a little trail that I, I go for my, my reflection time, my prayer time, my meditation time. And it, they talk a lot about that floating feeling and whether I hit it at two miles or five and a half, that trail has given me more, quiet intro inside looking you know internally looking moments uh, of, of any place i've had of late uh and and i went to that same place coming back from javi in, in hawaii when i thought my day was probably over i thought the heat the the winds off the lava i, I thought my day was probably going to be over um one I, I mentally i thought i could make it back to to the transition to get to the run and as I did get the transition, I went to that same place on that trail. And that got me through the marathon. I just, I pretty much meditated the whole way, much like I had done on my trail here, even though the difference in temperature was almost 60 degrees different from when I left Charlotte to when I got to Kona. Um, but yeah, the meditation, just putting your mind in that same very comfortable place, despite the outside world throwing so much uncomfortableness at you uh, is is a, is a powerful mind trick thinking about, Ooh, it's cold. It's breezy. 
a lot of people see me without a shirt on on very hot days or even cooler days. On the cool days, I think, oh, it's comfortable here. It's very warm. On the hot days, it's, it, ooh, it's cold out here. It's, it's very cold. And if you can learn to do that over your body, using your brain over your body, then uh, I was amazed how it was much easier to conquer Ironman once I had established that called a mental ability, a mental mind, mind ability to be able to just, you know, trick your body into believing it was the opposite of what it felt. It, it, it can be dangerous at times. Uh, you can wind up, you know, in the med tent after, you know, forgetting to drink or eat, you get so lost in your meditation that you, you literally forget, Hey, you're in a race. You've got to still maintain hydration and nutrient nourishment. But, um, the meditation has certainly been a, a huge part of it with, with prayer added in. Yeah. I, I remember having this long discussion with Mark Allen one time uh, about the, uh, spirituality of, of, uh, and he was referring to the Ironman and Kona and Ironman distances. Do you find sometimes you go there as you're out there performing? I, I think in the marathon, usually about mile 18 is kind of a dark zone. It, it, it can be a dark zone for me, but I, I remember the days of running, you know, 12, 13 from my house down to a friend's house, Tim Cambier's house. And I, I ran down that hill. It's two miles. Down, it was two miles from my house to his with shin splints. And I could feel the knots on the, on the, on the shin bone, just building and getting really rough. Um, and I just said, well, it's only two miles down and I'll just turn around and come back up. It, it's, it's nothing I've done necessarily in a marathon, but I'll take myself to that, that place when I was 12 going through the pain or to any workout I've done going through the pain. And I'll tell myself, this is a longer, slower race. I'm not in that much pain. And I think that's part of that meditation is just being able to know that I've, I've run much faster than the current pace, that I've experienced much more pain than the current pain. Uh, and I think that allows my, my brain to convince my body that, oh yeah, we can do this. And I, you know, honestly, mentally call it, you know, some people think it's a little weird, but I, I'll speak to myself the third person because I'm in that zone. I'll say, come on, Marathon Junkie, you've, you've done how many marathons under three hours? And as soon as I, inside my brain, say that to myself, I'm like, yeah, wait, this isn't, this is just another one. You've done hotter. Tupelo certainly is much hotter. Pikes Peak certainly is much hillier. Uh, so once you've convinced your brain that, hey, you've done harder stuff, um, you're, you're able to push through minor hills and a little bit of heat. Interesting. Lastly, a couple of uh, uh, questions about grandma specifically, uh, and, and you a little bit touched on this, but uh, was there a favorite thing you did in Duluth uh, besides the marathon? Uh, there's two things that really stand out in my mind. And every morning I was very fortunate to be up there for a few days. Every morning I'd, I'd leave the hotel and I'd go to the lakefront and just stand. Uh, and, and just take in that there was one day there was no breeze at all. And I felt like I could see forever. There was one day there was a little bit of fog and a slight breeze and it was, it was chilly. And I, I just, I, I just, I love that view. I love sitting on a lake and it was very quiet and peaceful. It, it seemed like I was there by myself. It was early enough. The sun had just, just started to come up and I was there by myself. And it was just, it was one of the most peaceful places I'd been in a long time. Um, and the other thing I remember, other than the course being awesome and the train ride out and, and hanging out with all the fun people, Kevin Zanker and Shane and hanging out with all those guys at the race. Um, uh, after this, I went to this place, a little Italian restaurant, and it's also a wine bar. I, 
I bumped into somebody who lives now lives not even just a few miles from me, Chad Champion. And he goes up to uh, Duluth, I guess, quite often. And uh, we just sat there, he and his wife and my, me and my wife sat there, talked about all our crazy running adventures. And he's an ultra guy. And just the idea, again, even during the race, meeting people from, well, from my backyard now, because I just, you know, just moved to the Charlotte area. But I, I met so many people from all over. And the highlight, I, you know, was, was, was seeing Chad there. And now we're, we're practically neighbors. It's funny. Well, that's cool. And you've touched on this a little bit, but particularly in light of maybe a first time marathoner, what's the best selling point you could tell people about the grandma's marathon weekend? I think it's a big hug. I, I, I walked into town and it's from the chocolate shop I walked into where people are like, here, try this. And how are you? And they always asked where I was from, but even though, you know, where I, where I lived, even though they asked that question, I just felt so warm and invited every, every place I walked into uh, so much so that when you walked into some places, like, did you have a reservation? I said, I didn't make a reservation. Hun, if you'll just hang on just a quick minute, I will find you a seat. And I, I just couldn't believe how fun and amazingly nice people were in Duluth when it's such a, it's such a busy weekend, I would think, and patients would have to run thin, but despite long, you know, a couple long, not long, but long-ish lines, I guess, compared to what maybe a Tuesday might be like, they were just so warm and inviting. And I, I just, I love that about Duluth. And I, I don't know that that sense of family at that size of a race I've experienced. I, I think it's been more rushed and get people in, get people out. Whereas in Duluth, I just felt like they wanted to take time and they got to know me. And kind of like some of your questions, they're asking me those detailed personal questions. It was, it was like you're sitting down at a family, like a family reunion or a holiday dinner. That's really cool. This has been uh, fascinating, Chuck. And I, I really thank you for taking the time and bearing your soul on so many interesting issues. It's great. And wish you continued success. We'll See you at Grandma's again, we hope, but uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's it for this week. And a very special thanks to our guest, Chuck Engel, one of the very best to ever do it, truly. This Gearing Up for Grandma's podcast is brought to you by Essentia Health. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate us if you will, and tell your friends. Grandma's Marathon is proudly presented by Toyota, Members Cooperative Credit Union, and ASICS. And until next time, I'm Peter Graves. Thanks so very much for joining us.